Well, we are a developed country. We are developed people living in a developed country. And if you watch the news of what's going on in the Arab world today, you just thank God that uh, you live in the country that we live in. Uh, though it should drive us to our knees to pray for these countries as opportunities, maybe, for the cause of Christ to advance if new leadership comes in, or it will be cut off uh, if uh, new leadership comes in. But we live in a developed world, and we think with a developed mindset, worldview, if you will, and we think so much about life through a, a scheme, through a, through a paradigm that says life must move up and to the right. That's the good life. If life is moving up and to the right, then things are well. If, if sales figures are up and to the right, you keep your job. If sales figures go down, uh, excuses need to be made. Fingers start getting pointed. People start losing their jobs if things don't go up and to the right. In fact, pe- people, businesses, uh, business leaders have written books. Uh, Jim Collins, for example, has written many books on the whole concept of up and to the right. How to be a part of a company that's up and to the right. How to be a part of a company that lasts and how to see a company that falls from uh, from the up and to the right kind of frame of mind. Churches uh, even get articles written about them and and put on conferences and will tell pastors and church leaders, this is how you move your church up and to the right. Again, we live in this developed world. In fact, if the stock market itself crashes and goes down and to the right instead of up and to the right, Worry, fear sets in, and there are economic tremblings throughout the developed world. Now, you can go to the bush of Africa, you can go to the impoverished nations of this world, and you can tell about the stock market crashing, and it means nothing to them. But in a developed world, a developed mindset, we think everything is up and to the right. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying there's right or wrong with that. I'm just saying it is what it is in a developed world. And one of the things that we think about when we think about up and to the right as we think of words like progress, growth, advancement, innovation, maturity, that if I'm going up and to the right, then life is getting better. Life is going from good to great or mediocre to good. or It's, it's making forward progress. One of my counselor training professors in life, in, 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 my, in my schooling, said if you can... If you can leave every couple that comes in for marital counseling with one sense of, hey, here's one kernel of hope in your marriage, and then the next time they come in, put another kernel of hope in there, that, hey, here's some hope. And Again, it's that moving that marriage up and to the right. We like progress. We like innovation. We like advancement. That's a part of our mindset. Now, if you have your Bibles, be turning to the book of Ephesians because this is not disjointed and we talk about that and then we quickly go to Ephesians. But Ephesians is one of those books that takes us from progress and growth and advancement and innovation and maturity in our faith. And it moves us from up and to the right. And hopefully when you come into the faith and relationship with Christ that you're trading up, not trading down. That you're moving forward. You're moving onward and upward and that life is better for you, but sometimes before it can be, get better, you have to face the nasty reality of the present. Before your life, I'm not going to say it again because I hope that really just rattles your cage in your mind a little bit, rattles around up there, sloshes the water, I don't know what. But I hope that you will think about that. Before you will ever be able to move up into the right, 
You must first figure out where you're at. And sometimes you have to deal with that, the nasty realities of where you are at before you can ever move upwards. And if you remember from the earlier part of chapter 2, I know we had a week off from Ephesians, but Ephesians 2, but now, now we come back to it. And as we're here, you remember that in the early chapter of, uh, early verses of this chapter, he talks about in verse 1 and 2, he, he gives several things to refer to who we are. And he says that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We're, we're following the course of this world, which, by the way, is also following the prince of the power of the air. And that just makes us children of wrath. And sometimes I'm afraid that we have to face that kind of music before we can ever face that trading up music. It doesn't give you a warm fuzzy. In fact, it leaves you feeling like a heap of trash. But here's something we have to realize. Denial does not change reality. That if I have the power of positive thinking, then it doesn't simply change the fact that I'm dead in my trespasses and sins. If I haven't first dealt with my own death, I can never experience the fullness of life. Denial does not change reality. And so at some point in every single person's life, we got to wake up to the reality that I have been following the course of this world, and the course of this world is following the course of the, uh, the prince of the power of the air, who is Satan. And I have been, in some degree or another, in step with that step. And it's a dangerous step to be in. It's a dangerous rhythm to be in. Now, let's go down to verse 12 of chapter 2, because we're going to really kind of focus on verse 12 and to the end of chapter 2 today, and kind of let that be where we're at. But what, what Paul does is he just kind of tells us to remember. He tells us to remember that you were... Uh, there was a time in your life when you were separated from Christ. When you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise. And that, that, that you were having no hope and, and that you were without God in the world. Now that's not a pretty picture. It's not a pretty picture of, of who I am and what I am again. But again, we must face the reality that at one point in my life, at some point in your life, you and I were both separated from Christ. Now, how did that happen? How does a child grow up in a Christian home, get christened, baptized, go through confirmation? How can we say that, that a child is separated from Christ? How can we say that a moral, law-abiding citizen is separated from Christ? How can we say that? Because the reality is that we have all sinned. Here's a verse I want us to read out loud together. It'll appear on the screen. Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2. It says, Your iniquities have made a separation, read it with me, between you and your God. And your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. Leave that up there for a minute. Read it again to yourself. Your iniquities have separated you between you and your God. Your sins have hidden His face from you that He will not hear you. We all at one point must face the reality we're going through life alone. We're trying to figure this out and navigate life on our own. I don't care how religious, how founded in the faith, how denominationally you're established. I don't care. That doesn't mean anything to God and His economy. The reality is that we are all separated from Christ. And 
some theologians believe that the first cry or first prayer that God ever hears is the cry of an unbeliever crying out for mercy from Him. Because we can go through life and we can pray all day long, but if we're separated from Christ, He does not hear us. Don't take my word for it. Take Isaiah's word for it. It's scary. It's a reality, though. But he also says that we're alienated and we're strangers. We're alienated and strangers. That sounds like it's a pretty lonely planet at that point. I'm alienated and I'm a stranger. I'm living in this world. Now, as Paul's writing this church at Ephesus, he's writing to them. And there's a lot of Jews at that time that believed that you had to come to Christianity through the Jewish faith. And so there was this great big wall of dividing. We'll come back to that in a moment. But it's not just that. He talks about us being, notice this uh, in, in the verse. He says that strangers to the covenant of promise. We don't even know the promises that we're missing because we're not living in lockstep with Christ. Because we're not in a relationship with Him. We don't even realize what we're missing. But the next one really troubles me. It really doesn't need any explanation. If you're circling these, circle separated from Christ, alienated, circle stranger. But notice this next one, circle this, having no hope. Having no hope. Even as I read that this week, it almost creates inside of me a feeling of depression. To be without hope. Rick Warren in his book, Purpose Driven Life, he said, without God there is no purpose, and without purpose life has no meaning, and without meaning life has no significance or hope. Without God there's no hope. When you're separated, when you're alienated, when you're a stranger from it all, then there's really no hope. Which just brings you to the last thing to circle in your notes there in your Bible. It says, and you're without God in the world. In the world, you're without God. Now, I don't know about you, but is your world all perfect and beautiful? Does everybody treat you fairly? Does everybody who said that they're going to do this in your life do that in their li- in your life? Does every promise that's ever been made to you, is it always kept? Listen, no. How in the world would you want to go through this world without God? Alienated, strangers, no hope. That's a, that's a desperate state of mind. It's a desperate, desperate state of the soul to find ourselves in. But then I love verse 13. He turns the page. He turns the, the corner and he says, but there it is again, just like back up in verse 3. God interrupts the story. Do you like it when your children butt in? I don't. It's quite annoying. All right? Or when I'm in an argument with Lori, I want my truth. When she butts into my great train of thought, makes gets me off track, I mean, that's very rude. I mean, I'm right, and she knows it, and she's just got to listen to it. But she butts in? You know what? We are in this argument of life, trying to figure it all out. I love it when God butts into my life. Because when he butted into my life in verse 3, what did I see? But God who is rich in mercy. When he butts into my life here, what do I see? But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off are now brought near by the blood of Christ. 
I love it when God interrupts my life, when God butts into my life. He, he changes the whole paradigm of it all. And understanding that, that God has got to have space in our life to butt in. When? Where? Why? What was going on in your life when God butted into your life? Are you say maybe saying right now, well, I feel like in some respects this is the first time that God has ever butted into my life. And I'll tell you right now, if God interrupts your life, it's for your own good. Because otherwise you're a stranger, you're an alien, you're, 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 you're far off, you're, you're all those things that we just talked about. You're hopeless in this world and you're living in this world without God. And that's not a fun place to be in this world without God. But when I pray, He doesn't hear. But when I'm suffering, He doesn't see. Because I am alienated from God. I'm a stranger to God. It's not a fun place to be. So when you look at this whole chapter, it's as if Paul repeats himself. It's almost a mirror image of one set of scriptures to the next. From chapter 2, verse 1 to 10, and then again in chapter 2, verse 11 to 22. First of all, in verses 1 to 3, you see the demise of mankind. All right, You see our own demise. We're strangers. We're alien. We're cut off. We're foreigners. We're dead in our trespasses and sin. We're following the ways of the world. We're following the, the ways of the principalities of, of the air. You just see this fall apart of ourselves. You see it again in verse 11 and 12. But then when you come to the very next section and you see the intervention by God, where God interrupts, He butts into our life. In verse or verse 4, he talks about God being rich in mercy. In verse 13, he talks about Jesus Christ because of His blood. We who were once far off are now brought near. So you see this beautiful interruption, this beautiful intervention by God. Ever known anybody who needed intervention in their life? Maybe it's drugs, maybe it's pornography, maybe it's something falling apart, maybe they're taking a wrong track in business, maybe they're their ethics and morals are a little bit shady and you just want to stand in front of them, just wave your arm and say, listen, you are heading down a train track of disaster. But you don't do it. And then you watch it happen. And then you regret it. What Jesus does is He steps into our life. He says, listen, I'm here. I'm intervening. I'm dying so that I can stand in the gap of you and your own destruction. That's exactly what happens. The beautiful thing on the backside of this, we see the new life for mankind, for you and me. Verse 4 to 10, or verse 13 to 22. And that's what I want to focus on today, is that, that, that last part, verse 13 to 22, to just kind of, kind of understand what it means when I become a follower of Christ, when I, when I trade up, when I move up, what happens in my life? And why in the world would anybody? You ask this question now and you ask it at the end of this message. Why in the world would anybody go through life any longer, past today, past this message, once you understand what you're trading up for? There's five trades that we make. Number one trade is that we move from separation to association. Verse 13, he tells us, You who were once afar off, you were strangers, you were in a distant land, I didn't know you, you I didn't hear you when you cried out, I didn't hear you when you prayed, I didn't watch you when you suffered, you just were in your own demise. 
You were doing it your own way. That's who you were. I didn't know you. You were far off is what God was saying. But what did he say? And have been brought near. So once you were way over there and I didn't pay attention and you were far off and you were alienating your sins, but now I brought you near. You went from separation to association. Now, again, I think we struggle with the whole concept of why is that gulf happening? Why is that sin there? Why would God allow that to happen? And the reality is, is that we chose that path. Our mother and our father chose that path. Now, being a sinner sometimes has this stigma to it that we don't like because when we call ourselves a sinner or we call someone a sinner, then we feel like we're some heap of trash. Like we're, and the reality is, and, and Eugene Peterson helped me with this, that the, the concept of, of, of being a sinner is not the difference between being an angel or an ape, or being a good person or a bad person. The reality is, is that we are a sinner that most of the law-abiding, tax-paying, family-living, moral people must realize that it is not sins that send us to hell. It is sin that separates us from God. It is sin that separates us from God. It is, it is, that, it is that one act, it's that one attitude, it's that, that way of life that, that, that's a part of us. James chapter 2, verse 10 says, the person who keeps all the law except one is guilty as a person who has broken all of God's laws. You can be a moral, tax-paying card-carrying Republican, voting, moral, fox-watching news person, and be in a desperate state in your spirit. Sins don't separate us from God. Sin separates us from God. What brings us back is in verse 13, he says, how did we go from being far off to being brought near? By the blood of Christ. One of my favorite verses is 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. It says, Christ suffered for our sins once for all. He never sinned, but He died for sinners to bring us safely home to God. What a beautiful reality of what Jesus did in His death. Many of you all know the story of, of our story with memory in Africa and, and the journey that we went on with her. She grew up in our backyard with our children playing and going through life. And uh, she absolutely was one of our kids, came in, ate at our table, lived in our house with us. Her parents end up, both her mother and her father died of AIDS. We helped to bury the father. The mother died off some other place, some other uh, situation. But then it left two orphan children, Ruthie and Memory. Ruthie went on to live with some family members. At the time, we, last time we saw her, she was probably 12. Memory stayed in the area, so we stayed connected to Memory. Memory uh, ends up going and living with an uncle, who we thought was a good situation. It was still in the family. We were still there. If she needed school fees, if she needed clothing, she could always come to us, and we would take care of Memory. When we left to come back to America 10 years ago, we took a lot of Jordan's stuff, bed, furniture, clothing, and we gave hundreds of dollars worth of stuff to Memory. We didn't know until some years later that Memory's uncle immediately took all of that stuff, sold it, went and bought beer, and got drunk on it. 
We didn't know that for years later. We thought she was probably in a good situation. We went back for a visit. The picture on the left is whenever I met her, and she told me that, no, she's been living with her uncle, and she's been being abused. That broke our heart, and at that point, we didn't do much about it, which to this day, Lori and I regret greatly, other than we helped her out with her school fees, gave her some money, said, don't give this to your uncle. This is for you, whatever you need, and we went back to America to our safe abode. A year or so ago, we, we came up, the story came back up in our life, and she came back up as in an appeal to us for help. And many, again, you all know this story, but I use it as an example. At that point, Lori and I were ready to move to action, and we were going to bring her back to the States. We were going to adopt her. We were going to do everything we could. We come to find out, long story short, she's married and has a baby. One of the things that happened in that, in that morphing of our own heart and life was we felt like surrogate parents, and we were separated by miles and culture and language and ethnicity, and it broke our heart. And we were willing to spend our last dime to get her home, to be with us. Now, again, the story has a happy ending. She does have a good husband. She does have a good life now. But I think of that story when I think of this, that we were separated by miles and we were separated by time and we were separated by eternity. And God knew of this and in His brokenheartedness sent His one and only Son that He could bring us home to Him. We were separated but now we're associated because we're connected with Him. Let's move to the second trade-up. Second trade-up is this, is that we move from war to peace. We move from war to peace. Please don't be mad at God today if you read His Word and He calls you a sinner and you feel dirty and nasty because of that. In fact, if anything, don't be mad at God be at. Fall in love with God because the fact that you are a sinner and that He loves you anyway. That's the beauty of the gospel. The the second reality is that we move from war to peace. I love verse 14. He says it very emphatically in the Greek. He says in verse 14, He Himself is our peace. He Himself. He makes it very emphatic. He makes it very clear where peace is, who peace is, what peace is. Peace is not a pill. You'll not find it in a drug given to you by your doctor. Peace is not in a bottle. It's not in a place. It's not a political system. It's not in a perspective. It's not in a palace that if I could just live in that house, I would find more peace. It's not in anything but a person. That's why the prophet said in Isaiah, years before Jesus came to this earth, he said, Jesus is coming and He is the Prince of Peace. That's why the angel declared in Luke 2.14 that the glory of God is in the highest and on earth. Peace to men. That's the declaration. It's why Jesus embraces His state and His being of peace. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. We long for peace. We want world peace. It's not going to be in a political system. It's not going to be in a treaty. We've got to know the Prince of Peace. The the peace is in the person of Christ. 
And the great thing is, is that when I become a follower of Christ, I literally take on His nature. So I don't only have peace in Christ, I have peace through Christ. That now I can be in relationships, and we all are, and I can be in, in contracts, and I can be in work associations, and I can, and I can be the person of peace. He, he, he tries to bridge this gap because it was very much a dark day. It was, if you might think of racial tension or, or of, the, of the South in the 19th and 20th century, or you might think of the, the religious tension of the Catholics and the Protestants of Ireland or apartheid in South Africa. You might think of all those tensious ethnic tensions that were going on. That was what was going on between the Jews and the Gentiles. There had to be a church council in the early church just trying to reconcile and bring them together. But go on and read with me verse 14. For he himself is our peace who made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in a place of two. So making peace. See, archaeologists have found back in 1871, they found a piece of Herod's temple that had it very clearly inscribed that that the Gentiles worshipped here, but the Jews worshipped here. And if you were to cross the line between the two, that you would be signing your own death sentence. That's how divided they were. But the beauty of the, of the peace of Christ is He breaks it all down. There is no black and white, Hispanic, and, and, and what other ethnicity there is in Northwest Arkansas, Asian. There is no male or female. There is no Jew or Greek. There is nothing like that. There is one, and we are one in Christ. Christ brings us together. Christ gives us peace. It's built into our very DNA. That's why it says in Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers. Why? What happens to them? They're called the sons of God. They're acting like God does. He brings peace. In your relationships, in your confrontations, who's the peacemaker? Who's the first person to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong? Who's the first person to seek reconciliation? Who's the first person to to dive into the nasty, grit and grime of conflict resolution and seek peace. See, that's the person who's more like Jesus than the person who can quote all the Gospels or who can teach through the entire Bible. The person who brings peace to storms, that's the person like God. Just think about it like this. No Jesus, no peace. No Jesus, you will know peace. They work hand in hand. Number three, trading up means this. It means that you move from being a rebel to being reconciled. I think we were all at some point in our life rebels. We might still be sophisticated, polished rebels today. But the beauty of of this whole trading up to Jesus is that you move from that rebel status, being ostracized, alienated, strangers, following after the ways of the world, you you now become reconciled to God. 
I love this phrase that he reconciles us both to God. All right, he brings us both back into a reconciled relationship. I'm afraid we don't know what that word reconcile means. I, I, I use it in counseling situations, and it surprises me when I hear people say, yeah, yeah, yeah we, we dealt with that. But they keep bringing it back up. Yeah, you know, we're not going to cover that. Uh, you know, it's like that person who offended the person, they don't want to talk about it. The person who got offended, they want to talk about it. And there's time for that. It's a part of the reconciliation process. But the beauty of when reconciliation happens is it doesn't come back up again. And that takes time, and that takes pain, and that takes process. But the great thing is, is that when it happens, it doesn't come back up again. He reconciles us to God so that when we stand before God, God's not going to pull out our rap sheet and say, you dog, what were you thinking? Why should, you know, just kind of berate us in, in front of eternity. He's not going to do that. He, he's not going to hold that over us. And I'm telling you today, if, you, if you're offended, if you're hurt today by the fact that I've called you a sinner, if you're hurt today because I've said you've been following Satan and you're a child of wrath, I really am sorry, but I don't think you're hearing the whole message because the whole message is this, is that ultimately when you enter into a relationship with Jesus, you're reconciled to God and the account is cleared and things are made right. And it's a beautiful thing. But then the great thing is, is the reconciliation continues Notice what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18 to 19. It says, Through Christ reconciled us to Himself, beautiful, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to Himself. Notice how many times He says reconcile in here and circle them. Reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Isn't that beautiful? entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. I love this because what he tells us is that we have been reconciled to be a reconciler. We have inside of us a message that can go out to the world, that can cover the the globe, that can go to people who are, are lost and hopeless and without God. We, we carry inside of us this message. We become ambassadors. We become the carriers of His story, of His interruption. How can I keep that to myself? What is wrong with me? You want to know what your calling in life is, where God is calling you? Here it is. Your calling in life is you were reconciled by to God to reconcile others to God because this world has 2.8 billion people that don't know that message. And we as a church must understand we are called to that. To go across the street or wherever we are called to go, we need to be the one who is reconciled to God to reconcile others to God. I want us to go to the fourth trade-up of coming into relationship with Christ is that you move from off-limits to total access. You move from off-limits you're estranged from God. You're strangers to God. You're alienated. You're far off. But now what happens is now when you enter into this relationship through Christ, you have total access. We've already read Isaiah 59.2. We've already read Ephesians 2.12. And we've already heard that. But now look what he says in verse 18. 
For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. I now can go boldly, as it says in Hebrews, confidently into the very presence of God. Can you imagine trying to make an appointment with God if God was not omnipotent and omniscient and everywhere at one time and could do all, hear all, know all? I mean, okay, you want to make an appointment with God, okay? 2025 on February 13th at, at, at four in the afternoon, and don't be late. I mean, you could, you'd have to stand in line. Now we have, through one Spirit, access to the Father. To the Father, to our God, to our Master, to our Maker, 24-7. Don't, please don't take that for granted. Please don't just, just, just wash over that. Please don't insult God by taking the blood of Christ that gives us that access to Him, brings us into association for Him, and just kind of take that for granted. Realize that we have access to the Father. Unlimited. Unlimited. I like what it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 26. He says, The Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us. There are times in my life that I have either so much burden on me, so much weight on me, that I don't even know how to pray. And this Spirit that He mentions here in this passage, that is inside of me, that's inside of every believer in this room today, there are times when you're crying out to God and you have no more words to say and you have nothing else. You know what? God doesn't close down and say, I'm off, you know, appointment's over, got to move on. He doesn't do that. He's still listening as the Spirit inside of you is groaning out. Now, I grew up in a, for the large part, a single-parent home, and, and my mother worked hard as a hairdresser to provide for three boys, and she would then come home with three boys that were ornery and did all their stuff as boys do, and then she would prepare meals for us, and then she would help us with homework. And about 8.30, after being on her feet all day and doing all that all day, she was wiped out. And as a kid, you don't understand that. So she started, developed this little phrase called off-duty. I remember one of the first times I heard that as a child growing up. She said, I'm off-duty. I'm off-duty. The house isn't on fire. Don't, don't, come, don't come to me. Don't, 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 don't yell my name. Don't come to me with an argument. I'm off-duty. I can remember just this jaw-dropping feeling. How can a mother go off-duty? I mean, there is no way that as, as children in this house, that what if I get hungry? Just walked away from the dinner table, probably left half my food on my plate. But what if I get hungry and starve to death? What if, what if the, the, you know, the sky falls? Or, you know, what, what, about, what about this? And my mother's saying she's off duty? What was she thinking? And then we had kids. And there's two of us in our house. And we had three kids. And you know what I have implemented in our house? The little light that says off-duty. And we have a time whenever it's kids, fend for yourself. There's the refrigerator, there's the water. Do whatever you got to do. Off-duty. I love it. And I cannot take it for granted that God never turns on the light that says off-duty. Off-duty. We have access to the Father. Number five, and there's probably five, ten more that we could list. When you become a follower of Christ, what happens? 
You move from a foreigner to a family. He said this in verse 19. He says, so then you are no longer strangers. Isn't that beautiful? You're no longer aliens. I don't know who you are. I can't hear you. I'm not going to listen to your prayers. I'm not going to help you. You're on your own. You're following the ways of the world or Satan. I'm not doing that anymore. You're no longer strangers or aliens. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members. Don't let anybody ever tell you that membership isn't in the Bible. It's here. It's in Romans 12.5. Membership, being a part of a family, being part of a church, is most definitely scripturally and biblically there. Now, if your concept of membership is joining the gym and paying your dues for two years and showing up three times, that's not membership, all right? If your concept of membership is buying the newspaper, I'm a part of the newspaper, or I'm a part of National Geographic, I'm a member of National, I'm a card-carrying member of National Geographic. No, that's not what we're talking about in membership. It's membership how? Membership of the household of God. You become a part of a family. Paul is very high on the church. He speaks highly of it. Because in chapter 2, he speaks of it and he calls it the household. He speaks highly of the church in chapter 1 because he calls it the fullness of God. He speaks of it in chapter 3, almost every chapter. He speaks of it, of the church as being so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. God speaks and reveals himself through his church. The church has a major player in God's economy. Paul has a high view of the church. I know there's a lot of bashing of the church today, but I want to say to you today that it's not just a church facility you're a part of. You're part of a family. It was so important that even in chapter 5, I believe it is, whenever Paul speaks of the church and he says that you need to love your wives as Christ loved the church, he gave himself up for her. The church is a beautiful part of God's plan. And it's a beautiful addition to a person who becomes a part of God's forever family. Is the church perfect? No. That's part of the beauty of the church. Is you don't have to be perfect to be a part of the church. In fact, the church is a bunch of misfits. We're a bunch of misfits. Remember, we all were once dead in our sins. We all were following Satan. We've all got our own stories. But we've got a beautiful thing going on here because God, perfect God, despite all of our imperfections, allows us to be His bride. Can you imagine? Holy, perfect groom, God, accepting imperfect bride, the church. Augustine, one of the early church fathers in the after Constantine, was one of the ones who really helped shape the church post the biblical times. And he said this to the church. He says, she's a whore, but she's my mother. You know, when you're coming to a church and you're looking for the church, you're not going to find something beautiful. You're going to find something wrecked, something messed up, but you're going to find a beautiful work of God happening in it. So my call to you today is to not join the church I call you today is to receive that blood of Christ and to trade up. Because when you trade up, there's a, there's a new life that comes your way. You go from separation to association, from war to peace, from rebel to reconcile, from off-limits to total access. You become a part of the family. But the problem is, we don't allow God to butt into our life. 
And if God is wanting to butt into your life today and you realize as you sit there and look at your life and your story today, say, Mike, I want that kind of relationship with God. I feel like a stranger. I feel like I'm cut off. I feel like an alien. And I want to be connected. I want to be a part of the family of God. My, my call to you today is in a good old Baptist way, in a good old Baptist invitation to just come to Jesus. I'm going to be standing here at the front band if you'll come back up. I'll be just standing here and you can come and say, Mike, I don't know what I need to do, but I'm ready to become a part of Jesus. I'm ready for Jesus to become a part of me. I'm ready for that peace to be mine and I'm ready to be His. This is your time. Father God, we bow before You. And we ask that as we think about what it means to be a part of Your family, part of Your blood-bought family, part of the nasty, horrible, cruel cross and what that took, Lord, I would pray that You would just interrupt our lives, butt in to our lives right now and make us whole and complete in You. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.